Hello, and welcome to Concentration Risk, the 15th episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series, brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. My name is Max Rudolph, and as always, I'm joined by Dave Ingram. Concentration risk can be a hidden risk if you aren't looking for it, but builds resiliency for those who actively seek it out and develop mitigation plans. Dave will share his thoughts, including a fun story to expand on the concept, and then I'll discuss some ways insurers can find concentration risk hiding in plain sight. We hope the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series will help you with your ERM program and knowledge of risks. Our program sometimes looks at particular risks and other times we'll consider specific aspects of risk management practice. By the way, nothing in today's podcast is intended to be investment advice. We're here to provide educational material and perhaps entertain. We hope that you will also take advantage of our free newsletter and webcasts for additional education on a variety of risk management topics. Let's get started. There are so many ways to concentrate. Strategic concentration is particularly tempting. When things are going well, it makes sense to do more of whatever it is that is working best but that increases concentration. Once you learn how to do something right, it makes sense to do more of that. That increases concentration. One supplier is almost always the cheapest, the fastest, and the best quality. So we give them more business. That increases concentration. There's often one product with better margins than the rest, and it sells better too. So we plan to increase our capacity to make that product. That increases concentration. We have access to a new asset class that generates additional returns, and, and, and so we add to our exposure. That increases concentration. Our best distributor runs rings around the rest. We are working on giving her a larger territory. That increases concentration. The alternative, the diversifying alternative, just doesn't sound so smart. You would do things like hold back when things are going well. Do more of the things that you haven't quite mastered. Buy from the second and third best suppliers. Keep up capacity for the lower margin, lower selling products. Restrict your best distributor from selling too much. Limit exposure to specific products or asset classes. But why is concentration risk so deadly? The answer to that is pretty simple arithmetic. If your conglomerate amounts to four similar sized separate divisions that do not interact so much, it's quite possible that if one of those businesses fails, the conglomerate would be able to continue operating, wounded but fully able to operate the other three divisions. But if another venture has just one highly profitable, highly successful business, then it will either live or die with that one business. In insurance, we see this concentration risk all of the time. If you're an insurer that only writes business throughout the Pacific Islands in the 1700s, but you find that your best salesperson is on Easter Island and your highest margin product is business interrupted insurance for the carvers of the massive Moai statues. So you do more and more business with your best salesperson selling your best product until you're essentially writing just that one product in one location. And then, the last tree on the island is used, or rats eat the roots. All of your customers make claims at once. You thought you were diversified because you had 300 separate customers, 
but those 300 customers all acted like just one when the trees were gone. Bankers have recently seen what happened when customers move in unison to withdraw their deposits. Insurers should manage their concentration risk and understand how their risks aggregate. So how do insurers deal with concentration risk? When a company becomes insolvent, it generally is due to a concentrated position gone bad. This could be due to bad bets on a specific asset class, such as exposure to residential home mortgages leading up to the great financial crisis, mispriced liabilities or reliance on a single distributor who died or left the firm to join a competitor. Some of these concentrated risks can be mitigated, but that typically inflicts a cost to offset the reduced volatility, along with often creating counterparty risk. How can these risks be anticipated and managed? Most risks can be identified in advance, but which ones threaten solvency? It's not easy. Bankers in early 2023 all knew that their customers could take their money with no notice, but their stress scenarios came nowhere near 100% withdrawals. If you have a concentrated bet in your business model, you should test what happens if everyone acts in a way that mimics historical worst case scenarios. Narrative scenarios help by considering assumptions that move in sync with the stressed variable. An example would be a floating rate bond. As interest rates rise, the default rate would also be expected to rise as struggling companies who could pay the interest when rates were low are more likely to default in a higher interest rate environment. Modelers often use rules of thumb to simplify their models, some cases holding dynamic assumptions steady rather than rebuilding them periodically from scratch using first principles. When the environment is unstable, this can be very dangerous. Many times the simplest answer is correct. Diversify into risks you understand that are not highly correlated with existing exposures. Let's look at a few concentrated risks and how a stress test might identify other mitigating actions. Let's first look at asset classes. Uh, for credit risk, bonds and loans rated below investment grade tend to be cyclical with stable periods of strong returns offset by occasional surges of defaults. Make sure an entire cycle is included when determining assumptions for defaults and recovery rates. A deterministic scenario with immediate defaults will stress a block better than a stochastic scenario set and tell a concise story. Assume the worst default rate in the last cycle for next year. Did you survive? For market risk, as it applies to equities, the key here is to test beyond the level required by the regulator. If the required scenario is 30%, then test 50%. In the U.S., we have seen these types of drops several times in the past century. Do your hedges extend beyond drawdowns required by your regulator? They should. Now let's consider collateralized assets. When investors reach for yield, Investment bankers always seem ready with products that roll together many high-risk assets that, when combined, magically are modeled as low-risk bonds. A stress test that identifies the underlying assets with their characteristics is a good place to start, especially if the investor owns the entire pool. Does the aggregated risk make sense? Now let's talk about liabilities. The insurance industry in the past has offered options to policyholders without pricing for them, assuming they won't be exercised. The Silicon Valley Bank experience has provided the best type of lesson, one learned by others. In the life insurance industry, before a product with guarantees is sold, 
It should be stress tested and compared with the firm's risk appetite statement. Dynamic lapse assumptions should also be tested as they have outsized importance for DAC amortization under gap accounting. Have you mitigated the risk of policyholder selection? For geographic concentration, writing business in one state or one sector creates unanticipated risks. Utilizing a reinsurer or creating a pool with companies doing business elsewhere can help, but be sure due diligence is performed. A poorly priced product can destroy the income statement of other firms in the pool. Be aware of the counterparty risk that has been added. A regional insurer that invests in the same area should be very aware of the overlap in this risk. For example, one firm held the mortgage for one of the World Trade Center buildings and wrote group life for a major tenant. Another concentration risk is distribution. When a large percentage of business is written through a single person or group that could change affiliation, it's necessary to look at incentives. Some insurers will set up profit sharing arrangements or increase retention bonuses. Most companies, when they're starting out, suffer from this risk. Diversifying through recruitment or a merger can help and will simultaneously offset overhead expenses. Insurers also need to consider the combined effects of assets and liabilities. There are three forms of leverage. Borrowing is one, naked derivative positions another, and asset liability mismatch is the third and most dangerous for many insurers. Any bet on the future direction of interest rates and insurers made will be magnified. Boards should spend time understanding this risk so management incentives are aligned with risk limits and escalating communication for breaches. To conclude, concentrated risks should be identified and communicated. It is easy during times of stability to stop looking for anomalies, but that is a mistake. These discoveries should be discussed at the board level as risk appetite is being set. Stress testing using deterministic scenarios can identify which assumptions matter for solvency, but should be reviewed periodically and built from scratch using first principles. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about ARM's ERM advisory services. Our ERM advisory team, led by Dave Ingram and myself, Max Rudolph, are available to provide a wide range of support to your enterprise risk management program. Here are samples of recent projects. Risk appetite and tolerance statements are the key linkages between ERM and company strategy. We worked with an insurer to provide a very practical approach to setting up and updating their risk appetite and tolerance statement using examples from other insurers. We also provide an approach to linking risk appetite and tolerance to individual risk limits. And it's interesting because it's it's so easy to keep doing things that are working well, but clearly that has its its downsides too if you don't think it through very well. And, you know, concentration risk is hard to mitigate. Uh, as an example, say say I currently have a great relationship with with my favorite reinsurer. And, and the costs are low. If, if I add another reinsurer, it'll double my work and, and increase the price as well. Uh, I understand the diversification benefit, um, but Dave, how can I how can I sell this to management? Well, Max, I, I think it's a framing issue. Uh, if, if you frame things so that risks doesn't exist, then, then yeah, the cheapest solution is the only one to consider. 
but but if you do allow your framing to allow risk in the door, then diversification becomes a must. We've all heard about, or or maybe even we've all experienced issues with concentration risk on supply chains. There there were some issues a couple of years ago with supply chains because of some. Uh, storms in Southeast Asia, and and everybody realized all of a sudden that that some electronic part was only being manufactured in one country in Southeast Asia. And during the pandemic, as different uh, countries shut shut down, you realized that there was a lot of of products that suddenly became scarce or non-existent uh, or very expensive uh, in, in all that because of the fact that there was very, very few, sometimes only one supplier. In insurance, we don't think of us, ourselves as having a supply chain, but it, it really is the same kind of thing. And, and the reinsurer is part of that supply chain for us. And when you frame it that way as part of a supply chain, that if a link breaks in your supply chain, then suddenly your business is gone. And that's that's what you have with the reinsurer. So that that's, that's the conversation you, you need to have uh, around reducing concentration risk is, is how that affects your future. It also affects the, the length of your, the possible length of your future. How do incentives play a part in concentration risk? Well, that, that's an issue that, that I've heard talked about, but I've not heard that many companies ever do anything about, which is, you know, having risk and risk management affect compensation. But in in most businesses, there are usually ways to increase revenues that involve taking more and more risk or even selling things below cost even. You you can juice up revenues by doing the wrong thing. And and incentive comp programs have to guard against the company paying people bonuses for doing things that harm the company and and putting the company at risk is is harming the company. It's fine for the company's strategy to consciously put it at risk, but it's not such a great idea if you give many people spread throughout the company the authority to take enough risk to put the company at at danger without notifying anybody. And, and in effect, by having incentive comp programs that don't pay any attention to risk, that's what you're doing. It's interesting. One of the concentration risks that a lot of companies worry about is that they're in a, a narrow geographic range. Um, if you're a company like that, how, how can you deal with that concentration risk? As with the other examples here, it's, it's, it's mostly an act of will. I, I saw a very small company one that was a single, you know, by charter was restricted to operating in a single state, and in fact was operating only in half of that state. Uh, they were told they were too concentrated uh, because the half of the state they were operating in was the coastal half of the state, and, and they were subject to to windstorms on, on that coastal half. They went out and they took their head of marketing. They said, "Go to the other half of the state and hire salespeople." And and they did that and, and managed to get to the point where their business was like 60% on the coastal half and 40% on the other half. So it it was an act of of will to to commit the time and 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 money to to hire the salespeople in that other half of the state, but it but it worked for them. 
it's not always even that easy. I mean, that wasn't easy, but but uh, I, I do know of another company that was a regional, uh, well, it was mostly operating in a single state and decided to become a regional company. So they opened up businesses in each of the adjoining states, six or seven ad- uh, adjoining states. And years later, the CEO told me that they had never made any money from any of the business they did in any of those other states, that, that they just never got to the point where uh, they hit a critical mass, where, where they could cover their expenses, where they could attract the, the best business. People were always giving them opportunities to, to write insurance on the business they couldn't place somewhere else. And, and so it was a matter of, well, were they clever enough to figure out what was wrong with the business? There, there are difficulties to it. It's not, it's not that easy, but all of these diversification efforts uh, are, are necessary. What if I want to diversify the uh, the asset portfolio, Max? Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, what do you suggest? I think there, there's a couple things that that I think about. One, one is you know now the insurance companies can can buy ETFs, even if you're a small buyer of assets. You can get a, a broad mix of, of geographic uh, locations through through that form of the asset, but you can also go into different asset classes. The thing that I always tell people there is to make sure that you have the specific skill set for that asset class, because I've seen too many companies that they go and they say, "Oh, I read about this in the Wall Street Journal. It's going to give me diversification." So. Uh, it's it, it must be good. You know, you can always hire somebody who does have that skill set, but there you need to also provide the oversight for for the person who you've brought on, because especially if they're an outsourced investment manager, you want to make sure their incentives are aligned with your incentives. One of the things that I found in a project a few years ago is that when I looked at what caused past insolvencies, and this was mainly for life and health companies, but I think I did some PNC work in there too, but asset concentration was one of the prime reasons for it. It was people getting in uh, big into uh, places that they really had no business, no business being. Dave, what about liabilities? Do you have any any more thoughts on that? My experience with, with companies that have tried to diversify, uh, uh, they, they often use the the, the term uh, diversification because yeah it's 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 different it doesn't correlate but uh, a non-correlating risk with a negative expected profit does not help the company. Writing different kinds of liability coverage requires different expertise. And expertise is not cheap and it's not easy. If the company tries to think about it, how did it get to the point where it has the expertise that it does have in its primary business? It took years to develop that. They didn't just go out and hire a person who came in and was was the expert and caused them to have a great business. Chances are, if there is somebody like that, that's somebody that could go out and start their own company. And and so you you have to be able to compensate somebody that that could do that for you at, at a level that that would make it attractive for them to work for you instead of for themselves. And and so it's 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 not cheap at all to diversify in liabilities. If if you if you do go into it on the cheap, you, you're probably going to have some bad experiences. So. Max, are there any risks that you worry about with an insurance company where the the industry seems to be over concentrated? 
Well, there's there's a couple. One is is just the what I think is an over reliance on FHLB for for liquidity, and I, I've thought this since people first started doing it, and it's got to be 20 years ago now. I saw similar comments made during the Silicon Valley Bank implosion here earlier this year that politicians really drive who the FHLB can can help. And the FHLB, their their mandate is to help the home residential mortgage market. Politicians could cut back and and leave out insurers at, at any time. So I, I'm not saying you shouldn't use FHLB. I'm just saying that you should show some resilience and have a have a plan B you know, a, a backup uh, guaranteed uh, credit line or something like that. Uh, second one is is just the, the oversight of these outsourced investment managers. Most of the ones who are managing assets that are also managing for pension plans and, and things like that, they don't have actuaries there, don't necessarily understand the way that, that insurance companies need um, ALM, certainly from a, from a life perspective, they're managing the assets and looking at it completely separate from the liabilities. So I think you know some some oversight there would be helpful. And there's certainly consultants out there who specialize at this, and and they they do a great job. There's several to to choose from. Third one is one that we're not there yet, but I think we need to to get closer. Is is this uh, limited awareness of of geographic concentration between the assets and liabilities? You know the story we always tell is about. World Trade Center on 9-11, where a life insurance company not only wrote the group life business for several floors in, in the building, but also held the commercial mortgage. And so got a double hit uh, during that event. So I think companies need to continue to work. And I, and I see progress here, but need to continue to work towards almost an x-ray of your assets and liabilities in terms of where they are uh, so that as you have sea level rise, you know what your, what the impact might be five, 10, 15 years out. Uh, it's a it's going to have a big role in the climate response as we go forward. In risk management, it's not an understatement that it, it is always concentration risk that turns problems into disasters. But as we point out, to be successful, a business needs to concentrate on what they do best. Insurers need to find a balance and to be particularly careful to notice concentrations that arise from totally different activities. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Crossing Thin Ice, presented by Actuarial Risk Management. If you found it valuable, please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues.